Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. Tim, you had this week's interview and you spoke with Rafi Krikorian, who is the CTO of the Emerson Collective, owner of The Atlantic. And I know you guys really talk a lot about AI. Um, I'm very eager to hear what all you have to get into. But I guess like my first question for you is like, what is Rafi's background with artificial intelligence in the first place? Yeah, well, he's also um, the CEO of an artificial intelligence company. So oh. it's uh, called Speakeasy AI, which is kind of like conversational artificial intelligence. But then he's got like a pretty deep background when it comes to tech and especially like the the engineering side of tech as opposed to you know, someone who's working in, I don't know, product marketing or sales. Um, so he was the... Uh, he worked at Twitter, he was at Uber, um, and then he was the former CTO of the Democratic National Party, which was also really helpful background because we talk a good amount about the potential for the U.S. government, other governments to regulate AI. What's his kind of like, you know, maybe top line takeaway of the state of regulation for this, you know, rather new technology? Yeah, I think um, a little skeptical, maybe not as skeptical as I am, but he also just launched a podcast called Technically Optimistic. So um, I think it's probably fitting that he played more the optimist <laughs> during the conversation. I played more the pessimist or the the skeptic, but I think he does a really good job of you know laying out like all the different concerns and considerations and challenges when it comes to AI regulation. If if only you know the fact that the U.S. government still hasn't regulated social media, so mm -hmm. what hope is there for the U.S. government to regulate AI, especially considering how much more technical of a subject AI is, though there's also the argument to be made that like, because with AI, we're primarily talking about regulating technology, whereas social media, oftentimes talking about regulating people and people's behaviors, maybe it, there is more hope for AI regulation than for social media regulation. But um, it, I don't, it, was, it was a really fun conversation, really, really enlightening conversation. Well, I'm excited to hear what you guys all discuss, and I'll let you guys get into it. Thanks, Tim. Cool. Thanks, Caleb. Rafi Krikorian, welcome to the Digiday Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Such a pleasure to be here. So, Rafi, you just launched your own podcast, Technically Optimistic, and if memory serves, AI is one of the big topics that you're going to be covering with that podcast. So, to what extent would you describe yourself as technically optimistic about AI? Because I feel like there's <laughs> a bunch of optimists, but also a lot of pessimists out there, cynics, skeptics, all varieties. No, I, I mean, I think I am optimistic. I think that the world divides itself into two ways when it comes to AI these days. There's the there is the the world we're going to live in a sci-fi future where everything is miraculous, and then there is the doom and gloom. And I think there is a lot of gray in the middle. However, I think that as people learn and understand the gray, we can actually get to a place where we all can be optimistic. Like I think we all deserve a world. We all deserve the Star Trek future of like cancer eradication, like kids having the best teacher they possibly can have, climate change on the decline. Um, but to do that, we all need to understand the nuances and what could potentially go wrong so that we can mitigate them or decide which ones we want to live with as a society, really understand where our values lie 
if we can do all that, which I think is a massive if, if <laughs> yeah. we can do all that, then I think we can actually be optimistic about where this is all going. If we can't do all that, then I think we have a problem because then I think the world does actually splinter into two where we have like massive inequality. Some people are being left behind. Some people move forward. Um, so like part of what we're trying to do the podcast is like really tackle the like how do we explain the gray to everyone so we can all be participants in this future as it develops. Yeah, because when it comes to like where things could go wrong, it feels like every direction. Oh, it's like every, could, everything could go wrong. <laughs> absolutely. And then for you, so obviously like you have your position as CTO at Emerson Collective, but you're not just an outside observer when it comes to AI. Like you have, I saw on your LinkedIn, it lists you as CEO of Speakeasy AI, which to my understanding is a conversational AI company. That's right. I mean, like I've been, I've been, I wouldn't call myself an AI researcher expert, but I've been around AI and using AI for the majority of my career. Before the term even became popular, it was just sort of like the thing we did. You know, I used to run the platform at Twitter. Like I ran the couple hundred person team worldwide that actually made Twitter the thing it was back in the day. I, I mean, I left in 2014, so it was a while ago. But, you know, a lot of the platform was enabling us to do content analysis, data and analytics, really understanding how to do tweet recommendations and things like that. I then ran Uber self-driving car efforts for a few years. I mean, the car literally used to pick me up in the mornings and drive me to work. And so like we were using AI all over, obviously, in order to make that work. Everything from mapping to planning to actually vision on the road, things like that, training simulations. Um, and then you're right, right now I also co-run this or this this company that we call Speakeasy, and its job is to figure out how do we use AI as part of making conversations healthier online. So instead of simply doing what you know a Twitter or a Facebook would do, which is using it for content promotions and moderation, how can we actually use it as a way to inspire people to ask good questions? How can we use it to inspire people and nudge a conversation forward um, so that people can actually get to a conclusion of a conversation sort of like change the dynamics of a conversation. Right now, conversations online all are incentivized by a number of people who are reacting to it, engaging with it. That That's what the, um, the conversational metrics look like. But what if we just change that around? What if the goal was make it healthy? What if the goal was to actually reach a consensus? Or what if it was to understand someone else's point of view? How do we use AI to actually facilitate those interactions? And that that's what Speakeasy is trying to do. So how does that work or how would that work? A few ways. So one, you know, every conversation on the internet looks somewhat the same right now. It looks either like a Reddit thread, and everyone has their own versions of a Reddit thread, whether it be Facebook or Twitter. It's like this infinite thread with some kind of plus one or a favorite or a like or a retweet. Um, or it looks like a WhatsApp group where you're all just like contributing and sort of like lose track of things because all these conversations are happening simultaneously. So one, Speakeasy tries to just change the format of the conversation in just small, subtle ways, introduce friction here, change the rules of the game. Like maybe one thing could be that when Tim posts something, he can only post once every 24 hours. Basically just introduce a small amount of friction that actually increases the level of discourse. But then two, use AI to both help Tim when he shows up in a conversation to sort of like catch you up so you're not just reacting to the last thing you saw, but maybe it could be that person you sat down next to a dinner party who whispers in your ear, well, like, you know, 
Rafi said this and Tim said that. You, you, Rafi, are like actually you should jump in here. So like actually help guide you to the place in the conversation, but then also provide tools for you to understand. Just like oh, you know, given everything you said in the past, here's something that here's a piece of content that you might find interesting that you could lean in on. Or here's something that you've never seen before, and like, and then maybe you should learn about it because that might give you a different perspective going in. So just these small tricks and the small amount of AI actually, I think, can actually really improve how people engage online. And if we can change the incentive model a bit, so it's not purely a number of engagements, number of tweets, number of retweets, favorites, but actually like quality as the metric, then people might actually be doing it in a more healthy way. So how would that work at like a concrete level? Am I like BCC speakeasy on all my emails? Yeah. Is it am I no, doing like three way calls? Yeah, it's a great question. So right now, speakeasy is it'll be deployed on a bunch of publishers in a few months. Um, so that you'll go to a publisher's website with, uh, you know, I'm just going to name a few brands, but not necessarily these brands, but imagine a world like a CNN and NPR. You go to their website, you see some content on it, the Time magazine, and instead of a discussion section, instead of a comment section, maybe you had a, a speakeasy discussion section. That section is moderated and hosted by some form of AI that's not trying to interject, it's not trying to add content to the conversation, but you, as you are interacting with it, might have, you know, something pop out of this sidebar that gives you some suggestions as to what to do, gives you some ways to navigate the space for you as you're sort of logged in and it learns what your preferences could be. So it's, it's happening on someone else's platform already because that allows us to align the incentives. So like a, a CNN, a Time, an NPR, you know, when they send their audiences over to a Twitter or a Facebook, the incentives there don't align with their incentives, right? Like Twitter's incentives are about engagement, whereas, or number of engagement, whereas a big brand is about quality and it's about depth. It's about the, it's around the things they want to do. Um, so we, uh, we can align those incentives better and then speakeasy there in the background could be helping out each individual interaction there. Got it. But I guess that comes to, that kind of assumes that's what the incentives are for a publication. Cause you know, you could also open this up to publications where their incentives are incendiary content because you get people riled up that generally engage more than if everything is nice and mellow. No, it's true. I mean, like everyone has their own rules of the road. And so I think this allows you to, allows a publisher to have control over what the rules they want their community to have or what they believe their community wants to have most. Like right now, when you send them over to the big platform, it's no longer your rules. It's the rules of the big platform. So here we're just trying to say like, if this is the audience you want to have and this is the kind of engagement you want to have, Speakeasy is a tool that allows you to do that and allows you to cultivate that audience that if you send somewhere else, you might no longer have control over in the way that you want. So we're building that set of tools to allow that kind of control and facilitation. Got it. Because it seems like there are two kind of primary types of concerns when it comes to AI at the moment. There's the the concern about general artificial intelligence, the idea of the AI being able to think and act for itself, which seems hopefully a bit farther off in the future. <laughs> though I mean, everything's changed in the past year, maybe not so far off. But then there's also the other side of it, of how humans could use these AI tools. And there was, um, I think it was, 
an NPR YouTube video I was watching where a woman was testifying, um, I think it was before Congress here in the US, and she was talking about how she got a call um, from someone, you know, in her daughter's voice saying something bad happened, you know, I need a million dollars and all of that. And it wasn't her daughter, it was someone who used AI to clone her daughter's voice. With like something, those kinds of concerns, like what are the guardrails that are being built into these tools then? Well, I mean, right now, I think if you speak in a general case, there aren't very many guardrails being built at all. And I think that's part of the issue and part of the th reason why I want people to focus on this, this gray zone of like, right now there's this shift in the balance of power where technologists or people building these technologies are actually holding a lot of the keys to the shape of what our society looks like. And to your, to your example, they're building tools that enable that exact use case. Or honestly, surprisingly, I, the latest version of iOS has something very similar where you can clone your voice and use and, and have your voice being said, which I find super interesting because like, you know, of all people, you would think Apple would have a pretty good pulse on what, what our society wants or what's beneficial, or what's dangerous. Um, but in some ways, this is the second time they've made this type of mistake, AirTags probably being the last time they made this type of mistake. And so I want more people to understand these type of nuances so that they can provide pressure in the form of either activism or market pressure or whatever, that these type of technologies are not aligned with the values that we want. And so like you can still get the entertainment value of a voice cloning software, right? Like, I don't know, I'm not saying exactly what's the right way to do it, whether it's either through a licensing mechanism that only certain companies are licensed to do it, or whether it be through a watermarking mechanism. Again, not advocating for either of those, but those are options. And our, But instead, we've chosen to allow anyone and everywhere to go do it. And the, the thing is, it's not everyone who's chosen to do this. A few people at a few companies have chosen to actually potentially wreak havoc on all of us because of that. And so I think it's actually really important that more people understand this so that they can say, this is not, these are not the trade-offs I want to be living in in my society. Right, yeah. I mean, one thing that trips me up when it comes to AI and regulation is to what extent can AI actually be regulated or even the development of AI technologies? You know, like for example, one kind of, I guess, subset of AI is machine learning. And that's a, that my understanding, and granted, like it's a very much a pedestrian understanding, but is that seems to be an entire black box where data gets input into the computer systems and then the computers kind of sort things out for themselves and there's some output that gets spit out. But between the humans inputting the data and the results getting spat out of the computer, I don't know to what extent anyone can get into that black box and put any guardrails. And so how feasible is regulation before we even get to like how realistic is the potential yeah, for regulation? It's a great question, but I think this is the reason why I call myself optimistic. And like, I think a lot of this is us choosing as a society, where do we want to focus our energy? So I think it's completely possible for us to be talking about what's called explainability in AI. I think it's completely feasible for us to go and figure that out. However, a lot of these um, 
companies, and look, companies are great. They do a lot of innovation in the world. They push a lot of things forward, but they exist in a particular incentive mechanism where they're racing to build features that can be deployed to the public, especially in the form of language where it's like as as seductive as possible. Like they're trying to make it sound so human-like because especially humans have this ability to anthropomorphize a rock. And now this rock is talking to me. Like, so like they're working really hard on that seductive lens And they're not spending effort on that explainable lens because no one is asking for it or no one is pressing on it. So like when I make arguments to lawmakers, policymakers, members of Congress, I tell them that their role isn't necessarily to say you can or cannot do the following. It's not solely about putting up harm mitigation or putting a box around what you should or should not do. But instead, it's like, how do we change the incentives on these developers so that they're not only focusing on how to build that next seductive feature, but also instead focusing on how do we explain how it's making its decisions? How do we then make transparent what are the inputs and the outputs so that all of us can see and whether or not we'd be okay with this? I mean, like, it's not even just the the point that you brought up. Like, if we if we rewind before these large language models became popular, you know, we had problems with algorithmic fairness all the time. I mean, Look, I used to run a self-driving car team. We tested the cars in Tempe, Arizona. That's where we did a lot of our data collection. Tempe, Arizona is great. The streets are really wide. The weather is fairly constant, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, everyone is white, like that you that you record when you're driving the car down the road. Every pedestrian is white. Every bicyclist is white, especially as you drive around the universities in that area, which we did. Um, and as we brought the cars back to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, you know, you notice a quality difference in the in the image recognition algorithm because there are just more black people in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And so, like, it's and that problem is not just in self driving cars. That problem was is rampant throughout a lot of these machine learning spaces of just these inherent biases of what's going on. And again, I think the role of regulation or policymakers here are to like cause people to have to focus on these problems too. It's not saying you can or can't. It's how do we incentivize people? How do we change the incentives of these people so we start focusing on these problems that we could consider to be important to our society? And I guess one of the many, many, many challenges when it comes to regulation is just the level of technical literacy among legislators. Yeah, to introduce like any form of regulation. And so like you for, you know, listeners, I'm, I'm sure Kaylee and I would have covered this in the introduction, but you were the CTO of the Democratic National Party. And so you have a pretty good line of sight into the technical literacy of politicians and legislators. How would you kind of, what's your evaluation right now of their understanding of AI with a lens towards you know them being able to regulate it or pass regulations that would be uh, helpful. So let me draw. Let me say two things. One is if you remember when Mark Zuckerberg was first brought in front of Congress, the questions that they that the senators asked at that point were. Or laughable, like honestly laughable. How, do, how does I, Facebook make money? We sell ads, <laughs> Congressman. <laughs> or, or I mean, at one point, someone just honestly even confused, like, why aren't you selling laptops? We're not Apple, we're Facebook. Like, I mean, so um, 
And look, senators are incredibly smart people, but we can't expect them to be fully up to speed on every single nuance in our society. Or, or maybe we should be, but we, but like people, humans have limitations. Um, however, when Sam Altman went in front of them, their questions got a lot better. Not perfect. However, their staffs are getting better. Their, their Congress people are getting better. Like we're getting better at this. But we are still so far away from being able to understand the nuances. Like, I think there is only one person in the House of Representatives right now that has an advanced degree in artificial intelligence. It's, it's Representative Obernolte from Southern California. He's literally the only person in the House. And I asked him, how does he feel about uh, people knowing, Congress knowing how to understand these things? It's just like, well, look. I mean, this is a representative democracy. We have our experts here and there, and we'll all find our experts inside Congress to help lead us. I'm like, but you're the only one, like <laughs> literally the only one. Um, and the Senate is is in a worse position. The Senate has some pretty amazing people. Senator Bennett in Colorado has been pushing social media legislation, has now been sort of pivoting that to AI for a while now. But like it's one out of 100, one out of 435. So I have a lot of concerns mm-hmm. over whether or not Congress can actually pull something off. The The best idea, though, I've heard is can Congress set up some form of separate commission um, similar to like the FTC or the FCC or someone else that could be staffed appropriately that could then both advise and set some guardrails and make recommendations that Congress could then actually make laws off of. I think, honestly, given the level of technical fluency in Congress, that might be our only shot if we expect a governing body to do anything. Right. And then it you know raises questions of what kind of funding would that commission Absolutely. have to be able to enforce anything? Because that's been a challenge for the FTC. That's right. Or, I mean, like a good example might be like the, the consumer protection finance, like, uh, and like, and you, they're constantly under attack. And so like, you can also imagine we're living in a world right now where AI regulation seems to be bipartisan, fingers crossed, maybe it'll stay like that for a long time. But to your point, if it ever becomes partisan, then that, then that becomes a immediate target for budget cuts. Right. And it also, like, in, in what world does it not become partisan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because but remember, I'm I'm the optimistic one. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair enough. You you be the optimist, I'll be your foil as the cynical <laughs> journalist. Because I mean, you raised the point of you know that social media legislation pivoting towards AI. I mean, the parallels between what's going on currently with AI and you know the state of social media a decade ago are kind of you know, mind boggling. Like I know as someone who was covering Facebook and Twitter in the early 2010s, you know, late aughts, it was a lot, there was a lot of optimism. It was almost exclusively optimism. 2016 election comes along and then the scales kind of fall off all of our eyes. And now there's a lot of us who are just kind of like, yeah, we, we really missed it there. And so now looking at it and like Casey Newton from Platformer, I think Mm -hmm. has been a really great example of this where He's you know recognized where some of the missteps were journalistically with social, and so now he's trying to think through how to responsibly cover AI and cover you know the good and the bad, the good the potential good, the potential bad of it. But when it comes to the idea of regulation, like there hasn't been regulation of social at this point, and there are clear you know examples of the consequences of not having that regulation. Whereas with AI, we don't have those clear examples yet. So what hope is there for there to be regulation without, given what's going on with social? 
Well, I mean, I'll double down on this for one second, which is I actually worry that we might not be able to get to a place where we even think about appropriate regulation on AI until something bad actually happens. You know, like in some ways, there is a, you could draw a parallel. I mean, you're drawing a parallel to social. I'll draw a parallel to the finance system. Like, we didn't really get our acts together until the financial system crashed. Um, and the thing that scares me even more is that, like, there's actually been some good examples of AI already causing a little bit of havoc. Like, if you remember, if you remember, there was this generative image of a potential explosion in front of the Pentagon, and it mm. literally moved the market. Like, points were lost on the market for a few minutes. Um, and that wasn't enough to raise people's eyebrows. So by definition, it has to be worse than that in order for people to get their acts together. So that's the thing that really concerns me. Now, that being said, I think that like there is a lot of interest because I think people have realized we missed the boat on the social media side. Like we are talking about children who don't have a good um, negotiating stance with the things that are raising them effectively. You know, I talked to this one activist, um, Shneha, and I, f- I forgot her last name, but she runs an organization that's purely about youth and trying to do youth advocacy against AI, mm-hmm. not because they think AI is overall bad, but, but they're the generation that was raised by it effectively. Like these 20-year-olds and you have no, no world where an AI hasn't been looking after them since they were born. Like AI filters from the instant they were born all the way to TikTok today. And so like I feel like like I feel like I again have a whole bunch of optimism in these kids who are pointing out similarly to kids around climate that they are the ones having to live in this world and I I do think the lawmakers are starting to hear that that something needs to be done there um Lots of things could still go wrong, but I, I kind of remain optimistic that at least people are starting to pay attention that something should be done here. Yeah, I, I agree with that. At least people seem to be recognizing that they need to be paying attention. But then I, because I, you're the technical optimist, I'm the, the pessimist generally. Um, like where I get what you mentioned, the you know, potential for the U.S. to have a commission regulating AI, um, I believe I read somewhere like Sundar Pichai from Alphabet, you know, Google's parent company, doesn't want that. And, you know, that he did an interview with 60 Minutes where he wants there to be global regulation. And, you know, the idea of this being, you know, akin to uh, nuclear nonproliferation treaties sounds nice. Also sounds like a way of kind of moving the goalpost or kicking the can down the road. No, I completely agree with that. Like, I feel that like, I mean, like, look, we, it's kind of an and. We need to do these all these things. However, anyone who says we need to do this instead of something else is clearly trying to kick the can out, uh, uh, like, or kick the can down the road or change the goalpost, whatever metaphor you want to use. Like, we clearly need to do something both at our federal level, potentially stuff at our state level, but also stuff at the international level. And we need to be doing things that are beyond just governments. We need to figure out the incentives on commercial actors. We need to figure out how to get civil society and philanthropy engaged properly. We need to do a lot of things here. And I think the the key is to just not get paralyzed by the number of things that need to be done. And instead, we just need to figure out how to chip away at it one by one. So in fact, I rather celebrate everyone who says we need to do something. We just need to figure out how to tie this all together into like a, a tapestry instead of just being like a one-off thing. Right. And and also like going back to your point and kind of the aim of your podcast of you know tackling those gray areas or shining a light on those gray areas. I imagine the 
number of gray areas or the depth in which people need to have an understanding of the gray areas varies by, you know, I, I'll have, you know, family members who, if they're aware of ChatGPT and MidJourney and like 11 labs, like that could be good enough so they don't run into a situation where they're getting a call by someone who sounds like me asking them to That's give right. them a million dollars. But then there are legislators who are going to need a much deeper understanding. Right now, what would you say are the most urgent gray areas that people need to uh, educate themselves on? Yeah, I do think that I I do think that this might be the year. It's either this year or next year that some form of our biometric identity management systems do fall apart. And I think that's exactly the argument that you just made, which is like I could get a call from my child, quote unquote, my child tomorrow, saying I've been kidnapped and the kidnappers want money from me. And so, like you know, that is like one of the first lines that every parent needs to start thinking about. Like my children and I have a code word that's not that's not published anywhere. So like I can know whether it's not whether it's really my child, even though it sounds like my child, my parental instincts might be kicking in immediately. So I think like those type of things, our identity systems are about to fail. I think there's some form of like AI literacy. And by that, I specifically mean disinformation literacy. I think it's really important because like what we're about to see, can you trust everything you see in your eyes? How do you understand what trusted sources look like some of it's just purely going to be entertaining like the pope in a puffer jacket that's pretty awesome um however the pentagon blowing up like how do you figure out whether or not that's true before you act upon it and like that applies to like sort of like all levels but look like i'm even going to step back beyond just the doom and gloom stuff you know my mother-in-law has a pretty good sense of why we don't change the speed limit on highways. Like that's an innately dangerous thing to do. Like it would make driving more unsafe or why we don't get rid of seatbelt laws or things like that. She doesn't have a good understanding of what it means to have a ring doorbell or some kind of video camera on the front of her house. And like, what does that mean about data collection? What does that mean about that? Like even that kind of stuff, I think is it's need, we need to be educating Americans about better not so that they can not, look. I like I too have a video surveillance doorbell, but like I have one that only has data streamed locally because I now understand all the trade offs of what it looks like. I don't send that information to the cloud. I don't want that going anywhere else. And look, Finland did this experiment in 2017 where they tried to educate one percent of their population on AI and AI ethics. It was run by this professor out of the University of Helsinki. He actually managed to get to 10% of Finland actually taking his class. Finland's a small country. It's nothing compared to the United States. Maybe it's the size of New Jersey or something like that. But now Finland actually has one of the most AI literate, they're one of the most AI literate nations in the world. Like they actually have a very high per capita AI startup culture compared to everyone else on the planet. There is literally stories about plumbers writing in after they took this class to say, I changed the way I do my business because I took your class, that kind of thing. So I think like you can have, like I think educating is not just about telling people the bad shit that might happen, but also like here are potentially good things that you could be doing. Like we have a responsibility to our, to America, to our citizens to both like be able to like talk about here are the things we need to mitigate against but if we can harness the good stuff, like, you know, what does that do to our GDP? What does that do to our output? Like all this stuff could actually be good. Right. Plus, you also don't want to run into a situation where, let's say, more affluent people have 100%. access to and knowledge of these AI tools. And so then it only you know serves to sever any equality. 
That's absolutely true. And like this like goes back to my like, you know, in one hand, there's algorithmic uh, discrimination where people are disproportionately being affected. But the other hand, everyone needs to be educated this so we can make sure that like we have like equality in how the story gets distributed out there. Look, I mean, UNESCO had a report where they were trying to survey every country's educational system and where they stand on computer science and AI specifically. And, you know, India now requires K through 12 to be AI literate. Armenia requires all high school students to be AI literate. America is nowhere on that list. In fact, none of the Western nations are really anywhere on that list. And so, like, we are actually at the risk of falling behind the rest of the world, weirdly. And we're the creators of this technology, which I also find super interesting. That brings me to, like, one of my favorite topics or kind of pet obsessions. And this comes up at a lot of our events, um, whether it's with publishers or with advertisers. But the idea of there being a home economics curriculum for the 21st century, basically like a technical economics curriculum. Obviously, we don't have that. I don't know what hope there is to have that. Definitely feels necessary because this comes up in the context oftentimes of talking with publishers and advertisers about people not being aware of data privacy practices and how they need to secure their data, how their data gets used, things of that nature. It feels like it would very much um, be applicable to AI as well. Is there, has there been any conversation that you've been aware of of some sort of home economics curriculum for the technical age i i think that is such a powerful and amazing way to freeze that i have not seen any governmental effort at this you know that being said you know i had conver- i have had conversations with different governors offices you know new jersey is a notable one new jersey actually has a statewide curriculum on climate and so like for them drawing a parallel to like maybe we should do a statewide curriculum on ai was something for them that was interesting for them they haven't thought about very much but the the biggest players right now are these nonprofit or academic entities who are trying to do the same push. You know, code.org has actually a pretty amazing AI curriculum for kids up to high school um, that they are make that they make available worldwide for free that you and your school could be pulling in and have a better understanding. They, they, they do more than just AI. They do data science, they do computer skills, all this stuff. Um, Stanford has a whole this whole organization that they call um, AI for All, which is specifically targeted, actually it was specifically targeted at girls for a while, which actually gave them a very different lens on how they need to be telling the story but that make it applicable for for a larger launch. So I've been trying to point a bunch of lawmakers and policymakers to organizations like that, that we need to basically accelerate these, pour, pour gasoline on these fires, that we need to get them to spread as wide as we can and as quickly as I can because our kids need to know it. You know, the side way that this might actually all happen is – you know, Khan Academy, one of the largest used learning platforms, has just launched Conmigo, which is this incredible generative AI tool that you can then talk to different historical figures or it'll help you understand different problems. And as part of doing this, Sal Khan has been talking about what AI ethics should look like and how to and what does AI literacy look like so these kids can actually understand how they should be interacting with this tool. So that actually might be this nice like sideways way of getting some kind of AI literacy or computer science literacy throughout our org. But that this idea of like a digital home economics is such a great phrase that I, I'm going to steal this and, and try to use <laughs> it in other places. No, I mean, there again, from our events, it seems like there's a lot of people who would like for 
there to be digital home economics curriculum. I I put myself in there because I think it'd be really beneficial to a yeah. lot of people. And then I don't have to sit through these congressional hearings where <laughs> senators are asking how Facebook makes money. I guess I'd be remiss to ask, like, given you are an executive at Emerson Collective, Emerson Collectives works with the whole, I mean, you have a you know, pretty broad portfolio of companies, but publishers are, you know, part of them. The Atlantic, for example, what are the conversations you're having with The Atlantic um, as, you know, one around their use of AI? I think the the conversations have been morphing over the past few months, and this is writ large, beyond just the Atlantic, if you, maybe you can clump all the publishers together. I think when when these tools first came on the market, I think you were seeing this, this interesting schism where the business side of a bunch of these publishers were all hot to trot on like, what can we be doing with these tools? Whereas the editorial sides of all these publishers were an immediate retreat of like, this is an affront to our business. We will never put you know, human creativity is paramount. We would never put technology in the face of our readers. Um, but that was a few months ago. We're living this time where like every day seems like a year. And so like that's morphed a lot, even just in the past few months to now like both business units and I see editorial teams are thinking about how to work together on like, are there tools that we can use to make writers not make their writing better, but can we make writers more efficient or more effective? Can they do research better? Can they gather information better to then put their stories together in more interesting ways? You know, for the podcast, I spoke to this, to this economist, Eric Brynjolfsson out of Stanford, and he, had, he paints it pretty well of just like the, the, the debate is between automation versus augmentation. And like the short-term thing that most businesses will want to do is an automation play because like we can just increase our, our margins immediately, drop our bottom line and just go. But he now has a bunch of data and I think this applies to publishers and creative industries too. He has a whole bunch of data that augmentation is actually the right long-term play of like if you can figure out ways to get the group of people to be more efficient, more effective, more creative because of these tools that will actually increase your profit margins in the long run by a lot more than the automation play will. I mean, there with a few caveats, of course, because like there's, there's still a few classes of workers that augmentation might not be possible, et cetera, et cetera. But like he literally studies call center operators and, and, and works through the call center operator situation and demonstrates that augmentation actually works better. So bringing back to publishers, I think the exact same thing is playing out there where like they're all no longer worried about automation. Although a few publishers have done it, you know, BuzzFeed now has automated quizzes. Le Monde has a whole English version, which is all computer written, which is kind of fascinating. Um, but those who are starting to lean into this augmentation play of like, can we make our writers more efficient, more effective? Can we gather data in better ways? Um, that seems to be where all the conversations are going these days. So I'm intrigued to see how that plays out. Oh, that's interesting. It makes sense because like, I mean, you laid out the promise of automation pretty clearly, but I feel like there have been all these examples of people adopting generative AI tools to automate parts of their work and finding that it actually requires more time or more. I mean, there was exactly. the lawyer who used ChatGPT to help you know put together their legal briefs. And I believe he's getting disbarred or less license, had his license suspended, something because there were fake cases yeah. that were included. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think that's right. I think that like, 
the work that needed to double check what's coming out of these systems, at least until these systems are built in a way that they're more fact checking internally, is kind of high. And so, like, a lot of people have now been thinking about and are talking about using it as a way to do creative prompting. Like, maybe, you know, someone asked me the other day, I'll draw an analogy. Someone asked me the other day, would I ever have, I'm very happily married, would I, but would I ever have an AI system write my wedding vows for me? And my answer was like, no. But I would have it write a hundred of them for me, and then I'm just going to take a look at the hundred. Maybe it'll, it'll spark something in me that I can pull. And so, like, I think that that might be the more interesting use rather than write this legal brief that I'm about to submit. I'm just like, give me twelve different legal arguments and let me think about it for a second, kind of thing. Like, yeah. I almost, I almost don't write an essay anymore until I ask ChatGPT. You're just like, oh, help me explore a few themes as a way for me to like work out my own thoughts before I go write out the essay. Yeah, it's like using generative AI to help with that blank page problem. Of That's right. Scariest things, the blank page, but once you get something, anything on the page, somehow the creative work gets easier just because now you have something to work with. That's right. Editing is easier than creating sometimes. So it might sometimes. be easier to like, yeah. <laughs> so it might be easier sometimes to just edit. Got it. Um, Rafi, this has been a fantastic conversation. Before we let you go, anything else that you would advise like any of our listeners to really be paying attention to or looking into or educating themselves on when it comes to AI? I'm, I'm sure they'll be able to, you know, tune into technically optimistic to get more of that. But anything that you would really call out before we go? Yeah, I would say two things. One, I would recommend everyone at least play with them and try them. I think that like part of us understanding as a society how we want our society to go is for all of us to have some experience on these tools. It's somewhat it's similar to like like you can't live in our society right now without understanding social media. And like like would it have been better if we all use social media faster? I mean the social media companies would definitely say yes, <laughs> but it would have probably helped us all get over that hump a lot faster to have some real conversations earlier. And I think the same thing is true with some of these tools. Like everyone, you should just try ChatGPT. You should try Google Bard and just understand what it is so you're you're fluent in the idea. But then the thought I want to leave everyone with, though, is like there's this interesting question of humanity that comes out of all of these tools. Like, what does it mean to be human anymore in the in the world where these things exist? And like, you know, in one way, there is a question of what is creativity. Like, I've talked to I've talked to writers from the Hollywood movie strike who are just like, these things should be banned because like this is an assault to what creativity looks like. You know, if you think about the, if you think about, I talked to a woman named Justine Bateman, the actor and the and the producer and the writer, and she noted that the 2020s don't have a movie culture of their own. Like in 2020s, like we're all about like Mission Impossible Seven, <laughs> or we were like, or the Marvel universe has been going on for 20 years, like that kind of thing. And like all these AI systems, if they're trained on an already existing corpus, are just going to spit out more of that corpus. So the question of our humanity and our creativity, the reason I want everyone to understand these tools is because like if these tools are slowly taking over, if these tools are slowly becoming inevitable in the way we use them, what does it mean for the world that we want to live in? And everyone should think about that because if it's not the world you want to live in, like it's up to you to somehow push back against it or to argue against it or change the way or change the things you buy. Like, like these, this world is not inevitable, no matter what anyone says. 
But if you don't understand it, then you can't be part of that conversation. Right. It's kind of like, you know, the big limitation of ChatGPT everyone's aware of is it's only, you know, has information up till September 2021. And so, you know, that's the limitations of its understanding of anything. And so similarly, like as much as generative AI tools like are creation tools, they're not really creation tools because they're just working off an existing corpus of data, whether it's images, text, what have you. It requires humans to be creating the new images, the new text that these tools can train on for there to be any real evolution until we get into general artificial intelligence, which is a whole tin can of worms that we don't have time for. That's right. Well, Rafi, really appreciate you coming on the show. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much. Tim, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. We'll be back next week with another episode.